Well, this week in our in our newsletter, I, I mentioned that um, that sometimes they are trivial, at other times they're quite challenging, that some are beyond comprehension, that others can be off the wall, that at times they can be helpful, on occasion they can be insensitive or useless, they can be fun or upsetting, delightful, enticing or off-putting. And here are just a few examples of what I'm talking about. What would you like for dessert? What should I wear? Can you explain metaphysics to me? What would you like to do? What in God's name happened to your makeup? What is your favorite run on snow mass? Why would you go out with him for goodness sake? Is a unified theory of physics possible? Questions, we all have them and they are a universal experience. They're part of what it means to be a human being. And some of us ponder big questions, others are content with ones that seemingly have answers. But wherever and whoever we are, all of us ask questions. And from where I sit, this is a very, very good thing. As I think about humankind, it strikes me that much of what is wrong in the world comes not from having questions, but from supposing we have all the right answers. Too much certainty, too much confidence, too much ego, these things lead to really big problems and a ton of collateral pain. I'm a big fan of questions. Having questions forces us to listen. We have to sit in that place of, of not knowing. Questions help us to get over ourselves. They also move us toward being more dependent upon God and other people. And questions help us grow because I believe we learn more from our experiences living in the gray than those places that are black and white. Jesus was a master at asking questions. You might even say the four Gospels are a collection of questions. Jesus' questions. It's like the book of questions. When Jesus asked a person a question, it often caused that person's life to change. Yet, when Jesus asked questions, the reactions were so varied. In response to what he asked, some people paused. Others reevaluated. Some got angry. Some had to face truths they didn't want to look at. Others were transformed. Some changed direction. Others learned they were quite stuck in their ways. But whatever the response, Jesus' questions were potent and potentially life-altering to those that heard them. So this morning, I begin a short two-part sermon series on questions. And we're going to take a look at a sample of just some of the questions that Jesus asked. And my hope is that this will help us all pay more attention to Jesus' questions whenever we read or hear a story from the Gospels, that we'll look at the stories of Jesus in a new way. That whenever we encounter one of Jesus' questions, we'll ask ourselves things such as, why did he ask that? Whom was he asking? Why? And what might Jesus be asking of me through the question he just asked the person he's speaking to? Now, while this is a two-part series, each week stands alone. In fact, each question we're going to look at stands alone. And we're going to get into a variety of different questions Jesus asked this week and next and explore them. Some of the questions may feel more relevant to you in your life and your faith journey right now 
than others, and that's okay. But with that said, to help us get started, let's take a look at this question. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus' disciples are in the midst of, of talking. They're talking about all kinds of things. Who's the greatest? Who gets to do work on your behalf, Jesus? And Jesus uses this opportunity to teach those who are close to him about a variety of different topics. And it's in the midst of this time that Jesus says, listen up, salt is good, right? Salt is a very good thing. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Now that question, if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? It's actually a great question for each of us to be asking. Let me explain. I have a feeling, and I wonder if at first Jesus' followers hearing this question were wondering what on earth Jesus was getting at. Of course salt is good, they must have thought. It's a preservative. It helps things last for a long time, and it makes things tasty. But what about the rest? How can salt lose its saltiness? And what on earth does that have to do with us, the disciples certainly wondered, at least at first. Well, let's look at some background to help us get at this question. Now, in the Old Testament, as we know, we encounter something over and over and over again, something called a covenant. And one person defines a covenant as a relationship between two or more people that is based on an oath. It's a, it's a commitment that two or more people make to each other. For example, God made a covenant with Noah and told Noah that while he was going to flood the earth, God committed not to destroy Noah. It was a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Abraham that Abraham and Sarah's offspring would be as numerous as the stars. These are just a couple of examples of many of God making an oath, a covenant with people. In Judaism, however, there was also something called a salt covenant. For example, in Leviticus, you find you shall not omit from your meal the salt of your covenant with God. And that was literal. You don't, you don't omit salt from your meal. It's a symbol of your covenant with God and God's covenant with you. And in 2 Chronicles, it says, the God of Israel gave David kingship over Israel forever by a covenant of salt. But one person writes, salt was used as a symbol of an oath because salt preserves. It prevents something from decaying. So salt was used as a symbol to represent an oath that is durable and permanent. A salt covenant was a way of saying, this commitment will last. It's not going anywhere. It will be preserved. It won't decay. We'll do what it takes to preserve what we said we would do. Now, these ideas and concepts would have entered the minds of Jesus' followers when he asked this question about salt, but they likely would have thought of something else too. Now, the disciples were not chemists, but they knew something. They knew that salt is durable. Salt remains salt. It's one of the most stable bonds there is. But in Jesus' day, people would sometimes actually dilute salt with other substances. They'd use fillers. So when people would sell salt with fillers, it was a way of cheating people out of what they thought they were buying. So salt, in essence, can lose its saltiness, so to speak, when fillers are used and it's 
diluted. And when salt is diluted, it's potentially not as effective as a preservative or to make something tasty as if there were not failures. So when you read the stories of Jesus' disciples, something else becomes very, very clear. Sometimes they did not get along. Sometimes they fought and they had quarrels. In other words, there were moments when Jesus' followers were not on the same page. They were divided. They forgot about their unity in Jesus. Division, animosity, and the like, Jesus knew would undermine everything. Jesus said salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? To be more direct, in essence, Jesus was saying to his followers, God is committed to you. He has a covenant with you. I am here to show you God's way. Together we can change the world and the ways of the world. We need to preserve what God wants to do. But if you get into it with each other, if you squabble and fight just like you've been doing, the impact you have will not only be diminished, but just might go away. This is why at the end of Jesus' question about salt losing its saltiness, he says, be at peace with one another. Saying all this another way, when the disciples were unified and on the same page, the Jesus movement was unstoppable and powerful and made people thirsty for a new life, just like salt makes a person thirsty. But who on earth wants to be part of a movement? Who wants to be part of a family? Who wants to be part of a group or an organization or a cause if those who are part of it are going at it and fighting? Screaming Christians with billboards don't do any of us any good. They make Jesus less tasty. Jesus' questions to his disciples that day is a great question for us to think about now in our own day. How are you? How am I going to make peace and peacefulness the way that we show up in the world? How are we going to live in such a way that people become curious about Jesus because of the peacefulness of our lives? How are we going to show up so that people ask themselves, I, I want some of what you have. I want some of that peacefulness that you have within, that you, that you have with other people. I want some of that calmness, that peacefulness in the midst of the fray. Now certainly this is a huge challenge for each of us, but Jesus calls us to follow him peaceably. And peacefulness is a sign that we are tight with Jesus. Peacefulness means that we are like salt. We're preserving what is right and we're making Jesus-focused lives appetizing to others. So let's jump to another question. After Jesus was resurrected, he showed up in some very unexpected places. Our reading today from John's Gospel is about such a time. Some of Jesus' closest followers, Peter, Thomas, and Nathaniel, they're out fishing. It was a total bust. Despite power bait and the right dry flies, they didn't catch a thing. And early in the morning, they see a person on the beach. They do not know that it's Jesus. 
And suddenly, Jesus, whom they still do not recognize, yells out to the fellows who are offshore in their boat, Do you have any fish? They tell Jesus their nets are empty, and Jesus responds by asking them to toss their nets back out into the water. And suddenly they catch more fish than they can handle. One of them, we're told, looks back at the beach and recognizes that it's Jesus who is on the beach, and he tells the others it's Jesus. So Peter, who had been fishing without a stitch of clothing, Peter was naked fishing. That, that's what the story tells us. Why he was naked fishing, I'm not sure. But what he does is, he puts his clothes on, jumps out of the boat, and swims to shore. Well, the others went to shore by their boat, and it's then that Jesus and the boys have a giant celebratory fish fry with the risen Jesus. Now, embedded in this story, which is one of my favorites, is a question. Do you have any fish? They don't. They have nothing. Nada. Zip. Zero. Not a darn one. Jesus' response to this, he gives them not only what they had been looking for, he gives them more than they could have imagined. And despite the fact that they could not accomplish or not succeed at what they were trying to accomplish, regardless of how hard they tried, Jesus helped them overcome. On the story, on the surface, the story is about fishing, but I believe there's so much more. Jesus' question that day is a question we're invited to ask. Where in your life, where in my life, are our nets empty, so to speak? Where are we not succeeding? Where are we not getting the results we want, regardless of how hard we try? Where are we empty? Where does it feel like we have zip? I believe this story is a reminder, an invitation for us to look at our lives and to be completely honest with ourselves and with God about where and how and in what way we are feeling depleted or empty or at wit's end. To take those areas of our lives in which we are not catching anything, so to speak, metaphorically, and to take that emptiness to God. Jesus' question this story is all about reminding us that while we may not be able to, God through us can and will. And what God does may or may not look like what we are specifically wanting or seeking, but God can and will respond to our empty nets in ways that may very much surprise us. Do you have any fish? Where are you empty? Where is there zip or not? Bring it to me, Jesus says. Let me cast the net through you. We're moving from salt and fish. One more question today we're going to get into is let's move to a scene next to a great big pool. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He walks toward a pool with five porticos or porches surrounding it. And people refer to the pool as the pool of Bethesda, which means house of mercy or house of grace. It was poolside that Jesus, Jesus encountered a man who was very ill. With what illness, we do not know. The fellow, we are told, had been struggling for 38 years. People believed the pool of Bethesda had healing properties. 
One person writes, the waters in the pool would bubble up periodically, and when that happened, the first person to get in would be healed, or so it was thought. But even if the waters had healing properties, the man was so sick, he was unable to make his way to the water for 38 long years. Jesus approaches the fellow and looks at him and asks, do you want to be made well? Well, after a bit of back and forth, Jesus says to the man, stand up, take your mat, and walk. Well, the story is about many things. One thing is clear. As one person writes, the man could go no further in his healing journey. He camped out as near to a place as he was able where there was hope for, the, for recovery. God met him there and brought him the rest of the way. For us, being ready may mean getting as close to the hope of healing as we can, trusting that God will meet us in that place. Said another way, the man got as close to hope as he could, even if he wasn't totally hopeful. Wherever we are today, it's likely we too need healing with regard to something. And the story is encouraging to those of us who may not be totally hopeful. God says, wherever you are with hope, however close or far away from hope you are, I will meet you there. And I find this to be very comforting as I reflect on areas in my life in which I struggle with hope. But there's more to the story. Jesus asked the man, do you want to be healed? Jesus is asking you this morning, do you want to be healed? Notice in the story that the man did not just float upward when Jesus healed him. Instead, what Jesus said to the man is stand, pick up your mat, and walk. The man was an active participant with Jesus in his own healing, even though he could not, nor did Jesus expect him to heal himself. And while we don't receive everything we pray for as we pray for it, while we are not always healed in ways we desire, while despite prayer and openness, tough stuff happens, while we don't always recover from everything, while we are mortal and life is frail, what is true is that while it comes to healing through God, we need to work in tandem with that. God may be the pilot, but we need to walk onto the plane. God will heal us, but we have to set the bottle down. God will heal us, but, but we have to exercise. God will heal us, but we have to be willing to act in certain ways that run counter to the mood that we are experiencing. God will heal, but we have to make the choice to stop using certain words toward ourselves and others that are destructive to, with relationships. God will heal, but we need to treat the person differently with whom there is conflict. God will heal, but we have to toss the cigarettes into the trash. We need to take the chance and make that phone call. We need to tell the truth. We need to admit what we have done. God will heal, but we have to go to a different aisle when we start shopping. 
God will heal, but we have to choose to confront negativity and hostility. God will heal, but we have to walk out of the situation that's harmful. God will heal, but we have to turn away from the destructive texts and social media and all that garbage. God will heal, but we need to participate in a community of faith by showing up. Jesus asked the man if he wanted to be healed, but Jesus also asked the man to stand up, to take his mat, and walk with God's help. Healing happens when we take God-empowered action. Just three questions, pretty rich. Jesus asked hundreds, and he's asking those same questions of you and me today. So just for today, just from the questions we've explored, are we going to show up in life? Are we going to make the decision to show up in life in the way that so many people have chosen not to in our country? Are we going to show up with hearts and a presence of peacefulness wherever we find ourselves in order to preserve what is right and make Jesus-focused lives appetizing to other people? Will we recognize our places where we're empty and depleted and catching nothing? And will we take those places to Jesus with expectation? Will we trust that God will meet us wherever we are with hope, knowing that healing happens when we're willing to act in tandem with God and through God's power? These are just a few questions in which our lives can be transformed by asking ourselves the questions Jesus asked. Next week, we'll get into some very different ones. But in the meantime, I encourage us all to get clear on what questions you have in your own life, to take those questions to God, to see if there are places in the scriptures in which those questions are asked. I think we're all invited to be willing to sit with our questions and not rush rush, rush to find answers, but to sit in that gray and comfortable place with God. So let's journey in this journey of faith together and thank God that the chapel is a, a place where it's safe to ask questions. And I hope you will continue to ask them as we journey in faith with our Lord. And let us pray. Gracious God, we do thank you so much for this day. We thank you that you are a God who asks us all kinds of things. Help us to be willing to ask those same questions of ourselves. Help us to be willing not to have too much certainty or too many answers all at once. Help us instead to depend and rely upon you with hearts that surrender and turn it all over to you. I invite us to a few moments of silence and just ponder whatever it is that we're asking ourselves and God this morning.